Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. I do not have a PowerPoint for you. Instead, I've printed a little piece of paper that's beside your bulletins um, as help for you if you should, if that if that's helpful to you to follow the notes a little bit. Um, this morning, we wanted to look at Mark chapter 1 as we see kind of the opening of Mark's book. And I I have a, I, I mentioned this earlier in the service, but I, I also have mentioned it in the past that I believe that Matthew was getting at the idea that Jesus was the returning, the, the true king, the king who would sit on the throne forever that's promised in 2 Samuel 7, that king, the descendant of David. Uh, so I believe that Matthew was articulating that. I believe that Luke was articulating that Jesus was the priest for all men, the priest for all mankind, that he came to be the atoning sacrifice, the one who makes the sacrifice for everyone. Uh, and Luke, you see this very clear emphasis that he is for the lame and he is for the healthy. He is for the, the rich and he is for the poor. He is for those who are downcast and he is for those who are raised up. He is the God over all, and He is the priest for all people. He's the one who redeems and saves all people. Any who would come and trust in Christ would be saved in Luke. And then in Matthew, I mean in Mark, uh, in Mark, we have this picture of Jesus as prophet, the true prophet, the one that Moses promised that we read about at the beginning of the service in Deuteronomy 18, where we read that Moses stands on the mountain with the people and he says, Behold, I will send you, he's speaking for the Lord, he says, I will send you one who is like Moses, who will come from among you, who will lead you, who will speak to you the word of God, and you will listen to him. And you will listen to him. And then if you follow that through, you see Jeremiah talking about the same prophet to come, the same good, true word of God to come, and he brings up that the peop- he will speak the law of God to the people and put it on their hearts. In Ezekiel, he says he will not only put it on their hearts, he will give them a new heart, sprinkle clean water on them, and change their hearts and make them new. And, and then in Isaiah, it even goes further to say that he will walk among his people. He will be with his people as the prophet, as the one who is the voice of the Lord to his people. So Mark, I believe, highlights that. Indeed, one of the most favorite words of Mark is the word immediately. And you'll notice it as we read, or suddenly, depending on your translation. You'll notice it as we read. He says, immediately, immediately this happens, immediately this happens. Because Mark is a very exciting, action-packed book. It's just constant. And if you think about all the prophets in the Old Testament, their lives are that way. Immediately this happens, immediately this happens, immediately this happens. It's this constant movement. So as we approach Mark, we're going to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 28. And as we approach Mark, I wanted that fresh on your mind, that this is the true prophet of the Lord. Let's read together Mark chapter 1, all the way through to verse 28. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his path. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, whose strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice, a voice came from the heaven, 
You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And when he was with the wild animals, and the angels were attending or ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And when, and then, they, I'm sorry, and they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed. And they questioned or debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits. And they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. So as we approach this, we see some pretty incredible things right at the outset of Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist is mentioned first. And there's a reason for that. John, I mean, Mark is trying to point out that Jesus is the better prophet. That's the very first thing. John the Baptist, the greatest of prophets. Jesus calls him greatest of prophets, says, born among women, there's not a greater man. So he, he heralds John as this incredible man of God. John lived out in the wilderness. Most likely John was some sort of Essene. Uh, Essenes were a sect, of a religious sect that lived in the desert. Most likely he was one of those. The reason we say that is because he dressed and acted like an Essene. One of the key things that Essenes did was bathe, which is wild. You don't think about that very often when you think of John in the wilderness. You think of a guy that is very dirty, uh, hair is messy, he's, he looks crazy. But understand he was bathing every day. He's baptizing people. He's in the water. So he's probably cleaner than the average person. And if he was an Essene, they bathed every day as, an, as a ritual act of purity. So this is, he could have been from that sect. It makes sense. They were out in the wilderness. They lived apart from society. It's probably highly likely that he was an Essene. But John the Baptist lives in the wilderness. And there's some things we can learn about John the Baptist in the wilderness that are very encouraging to us. First, that... The wilderness is the place where God often meets and reveals himself. We see this all through the Old Testament. Hagar is, uh, meets God in the wilderness. Abraham meets God in the wilderness. Moses meets God in the wilderness. The people of Israel are led through the wilderness to learn about who God is. Every time that there's some major issue with a prophet, where does he go? Woods. Right? He goes out into the wilderness. And when you think about wilderness, I want you to understand... Uh, a lot of your Bibles interpret that or translate it as desert. And we get this idea of like rocky terrain and, and dirt. This is probably lush woods, um, probably wilderness. So there's trees and water and creek beds. And I say that because I want you to understand 
you live in an area where there's this kind of stuff. There are creek beds and there are trees and there are backwoods areas and and it's uncomfortable to be there, but you live here. You know what it's like. You know that if you walk through Brazos Bend State Park, probably a good idea to take a gun in case you see an alligator. Um, but alligators, you also know, alligators probably aren't going to bother you because you're from here and you know that they're lazy creatures and you're, you run, so they don't want to chase you. They're lazy. So we, we understand that. Understand John being in the wilderness is an indication primarily of the fact that he's not in the city. He's outside of the city. He's outside of the bustle of people and activity. He's outside of daily business. He's outside of material wealth. He's outside of the city. In the same way that God often meets us outside of those things. In moments when we are away from those things. In moments of quiet desperation when we feel like we're in dangerous places away from our comfort zones in the wilderness. John is in the wilderness, and prophets, like him, live outside the norm. They live outside in the wilderness. They live away. And John lived his entire life that way. He was out there all the time. He didn't come in and out of the city. At least that's not what's recorded for us. What's recorded for us is he's out past the Jordan, living in the wilderness. So that's the first thing. John, the baptizer, is in the wilderness. And call him the baptizer, by the way. He's not Baptist. You didn't make it into the book. We're not. Baptists aren't in the book. Like, that's not us. That's, this is John the baptizer. We steal his name as our moniker, but it's not like this. This isn't where the Baptist started. The Baptist started in the 1500s. So just in case that was rattling around in your brain and you're going, B.H. Uh, Carroll, uh, you know, Jesus and John at the Jordan is the start of the Baptist. No, that's no. Stop it. The baptizer here is in the wilderness and he looks different. So think about his appearance. It's emphasized here for us that he is wearing a leather belt. He has camel's hair. Uh, he has a, a, a robe of camel's hair of some sort. He's wearing a leather belt around his waist. He eats locusts. And wild honey. There's a lot to extrapolate there. Uh, for example, the idea that he eats that which devours. He is empowered by God to eat locusts, which is that which devours crops and fields. So he is an, an emblem of overcoming. He also eats that which is bitter to the world, but sweet to him. Honey, wild honey. Wild honey, not a sweet thing. Wild honey is often bitter in the ancient Near East. And, but he was able to eat it with this locust. So that which devours, he overcomes. That which is bitter, he makes sweet. All because he's preaching the message of Christ. That which isn't supposed to be clothing him is covering him. Because he has, he has the covering of God on him. So he looks different. He looks different. As anyone who follows the Lord is going to look different. And the things that are supposed to crush us will not crush us. I'm persecuted, not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We have this, we carry about in our bodies, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we carry about in our bodies, this body of death that you might have life. We overcome all things. We are more than conquerors. That's what John is an emblem of for us. This last Old Testament prophet the true, the the Old Testament prophet who points to Jesus, the very thing we are to do as Christ followers. Right, we are overcomers in this way. He takes that which is uncomfortable and wears it. He takes that which devours and devours it. He takes that which is bitter and makes it sweet. The gospel of Jesus Christ overcomes all things in the people who worship and follow and preach his message. So, we have John's message, finally. We've got the way that he is in the wilderness, we've got the way he looks, and we've got his message. And let's look at what he says here. In the country, of, in verse 5, in the country, or I'm sorry, in verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, 
and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. His message is twofold. One, I'm going to baptize you for repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's the first one. So the Old Testament prophet is calling for the people, repent for the forgiveness of sins. This is common through the Old Testament. Amos gives the same message. Repent from sin and follow the Lord. Return to the Lord. Leave your wicked ways. Return to the Lord. It's this call to repent. Repent, in case you didn't know, repent means to stop doing sin. That's the easiest way to put it. Repent means you stop doing sin and you start heading towards righteousness. You are changing direction when you repent. So we see repent for the forgiveness of sins. The second part of his message is found there in verse 7. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, whose strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down to untie. I have baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He points to Christ, saying, Christ is mightier than me first. Christ is mightier than I am. He's he's greater than I am. Second, he's got a position greater than me. I can't even stoop down to untie his shoes. I'm not even worthy to, to be down at the bottom, the lowest servant. I'm not even worthy to do that. Now, this is the greatest among prophets. This is the one Jesus calls the greatest among prophets. And he recognized that he had no deserved place in the kingdom. He recognized that he did not deserve to serve the Lord. And yet, he comes, Jesus comes to him to be baptized. Jesus comes to him to be baptized. This is an incredible act of mercy on our God. No one is righteous. No, not one man seeks after God. No one deserves Christ. And yet, Christ loves you. And comes to you and gives you opportunities to serve and do things. And gives you open hands with which to know him and worship him. This is beautiful. This is incredible. And so Mark records him as saying that he is mightier. Jesus is mightier than John. He's in a better, he's in a greater position than John. And he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. You see, water is good for cleaning the body, but it doesn't clean the soul. And what is it that Ezekiel promises when he says, I will be their shepherd, they will be my people, and I will come to them? He says, I will be their shepherd. I will take their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. I will sprinkle clean water on them. I will give them a new spirit, and I will put my spirit within them. See, Jesus doesn't simply wash you clean, but puts his spirit to live inside you, to constantly cleanse you, to constantly clean you. This is what we have in Colossians chapter 3 when he says that he, you have a new nature, which is, remember, memorize it, being renewed after the image of its creator. It's constantly being renewed after the image of its creator, present tense, active. He does not simply save you and push you out and go, okay, go do good. I hope you don't mess it up. No, he saves you, redeems you, changes your heart, and then walks with you to rescue you. This is Jesus, the greater true prophet, the better prophet. He's profoundly more powerful. And John, the the baptizer, points to him. So Jesus is the better prophet. Look at verse 9, and we're going to fly through verses 9 through uh, all the way through 20. So let's let's go. Let's move. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. So he comes from outside. He's not come. Notice he's not coming from Jerusalem. He's not coming from the religious elite. He's coming from Nazareth of Galilee. He's coming from the rough and tumble business area. All the fishermen live here. This is where the roughnecks live. This is where the people are troubled. This is where people work with their hands. This is where Jesus is from. I'm telling you, 
Jesus is from Brazoria County. That's how this feels. He's not from some elite area. He's not from some, you know, exalted place. When Jesus walked into a room, what did people say? Can anything good come from Nazareth? That's what people said. People were not impressed by him when he walked into the room. Indeed, they weren't impressed by him until he changed their hearts. Even before he changed their hearts, when they meet him, they talk to him, they're kind of astonished that he knows what he does. Nobody looks at Jesus and goes, yeah, I'd expect a doctoral thesis on incarnation from him. No, people looked at Jesus and they thought, wow, intelligent words are coming out of a guy from Nazareth. That's what they thought. So Jesus is from Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up from the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. I love the imagery that that Mark uses there, tearing the sky open, that the heavens were ripped apart and there's a hole and God comes down. That's the picture. The picture is them being torn. It's the same picture used in the veil. Remember the veil in the temple when Jesus is crucified and the veil is torn from top to bottom? God tears the veil so that everyone now has access to the Holy of Holies. This is the same image. He gets baptized, death, resurrection, torn sky. All of a sudden you have access to the heavens. And what comes out of the heavens? What comes out of the heavens is the Holy Spirit landing on Jesus like a dove. The low, again, the lowest form of sacrifice. This is the sacrifice that anybody could make. You can catch a dove. You can catch a dove in a city. You put out things. They're easy to trap. Doves are not somehow. They're not crafty. They're goofy. In New York, you can go pour in Central Park. You can have seeds, throw them on the ground, and the doves will land on you. They're not brilliant animals. They're pigeons. You can catch them. And you can take those doves and you can go to the temple and you can say, look, I have a dove. I don't have anything else. And the priest would look at you and go, this is acceptable before the Lord. The lowest form of sacrifice. Jesus, do you ever wonder why a lamb doesn't, you know, uh, the spirit doesn't frolic in like a lamb? Because he's sending you a message. This is for the lowest of people. That Jesus comes to everyone. Even the lowest caste that can't afford him. You can't buy this salvation. You can't get this salvation. You don't deserve it. There's no way for you to earn it. But it comes to you. The heavens are torn open. And God comes down to you. This mirrors the resurrection. So Jesus buried in the water and raised again. And immediately the dove comes down. This is a picture of the sacrifice that is to come. And Jesus comes to earth to answer our troubles. The heavens are opened and he comes to earth. And it says in verse 11, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. I am satisfied with this one. This one is acceptable to me. That's our atoning sacrifice before the Lord. You stand before him. If you've trusted in Christ, you stand before the Lord and he sees his beloved son with whom he is satisfied. With whom he's satisfied. And he sees what Jesus has done in you. And he sees, get this, he sees you. For who you are supposed to be, all the sin removed. All the sin taken off. Everything that hindered you from from being pleasing before the Lord. Everything that got in the way of God being pleased with you is gone. And he sees you because Jesus rescued and redeemed you. And covered you in his robes so you could stand before the Lord free of sin free of sin and God looks at you and you know what Paul says about about that you can now delight the Lord that your pursuit of holiness is a pleasure to God 
delight the Lord. You can bring joy to the Lord and delight in Him. Jesus stands here and exhibits for us the picture of Isaac and Abraham. When Isaac was taken on the mountain, going to be sacrificed, you are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. For God gave his only son, his only son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. This is the sacrifice we've been waiting for. This is the open veil to heaven that we've been waiting for. This is Jesus. And immediately in verse 12, he's driven out into the wilderness. Mark emphasizes that the Spirit of God came to Jesus, lands on him like a dove, the voice comes from heaven, and he is pushed, is shoved into the wilderness. Jesus is pushed into the wilderness. Where prophets come from. Prophets come from the wilderness. God meets his people in the wilderness. All the prophets of old at some point are in the woods. Jesus gets pushed into the wilderness and he battles. He's, he's tempted by Satan and he's with the wild animals and the angels are ministering to him. The emphasis or the mention of the wild animals, I believe, is a callback to Elijah at the brook of Cherub where the, the birds bring him food. Like this, that this image of God working in creation and him somehow being able to be amidst creation in its lowest form, in its most base form, like Adam in the garden. Jesus gets compelled to go out into the wilderness and lives like Adam in the garden, battling against the temptation of Satan. And in, unlike Adam, Jesus wins the temptation battle. Right. Unlike that, he, he wins in the temptation battle. So we see, uh, you can, you can read more about that in Matthew, by the way. Matthew has a more detailed description. And, uh, John also has a detailed description of Jesus defeating Satan. He, he overcomes the temptation. Then, verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. The prophet of the Old Testament had to be arrested before Jesus shows up in Mark's chronology, <coughs> pardon me, in Mark's chronology, he's got the prophet of the Old Testament being arrested and pushed aside or pushed out of the way of the story so Jesus can go forward. Matthew puts it this way and says, he must, John looks at his disciples and says, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. Jesus must increase, I must decrease. Indeed, John's role was to point to Jesus. My role, your role as a Christian is to point to Jesus. You, you should be super happy when people remember Christ and forget your name. That is one of the most glorious things that could ever happen in your life. That God uses you to such an extent that people forgot you existed and saw Jesus. <laughs> that is glorious. Jesus comes after this and he preaches the message. Jesus is baptized. He's taken out in the wilderness. And then he preaches this message. He says, <coughs> the time is fulfilled. Pardon me. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the good news. This, by the way, good news, gospel, was what was used to call, was what was used to refer to the Christian message until about 400 AD when we started using other terms. But this is what was used all the time, the good news. You didn't talk about Christianity, you talked about the good news. You talked about the gospel. That's what people said up until about 400 AD when it became common to talk about Christianity. Uh, as a religious group, we were preaching the good news. We are preaching now the good news of Jesus Christ. And Jesus came preaching the good news, which is what? That the time is fulfilled. All that time you've been waiting for, it's fulfilled. It's done. He's come. Time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. The veil has been torn. You can see the heavens. The Lord has come. The king is here. 
And he says, believe the gospel, repent and believe. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, it says, in the fullness of time, God sent his son. This was the perfect time. This was time set just right. He came at just the right moment. Anybody who studies world history, everything collides right here with Jesus's appearance. So perfect was the timing that when he came, our dating system landed around him. Our very dating system landed around him. And don't Listen, before common error, common error, nonsense. That's ridiculous. It's clearly before Christ and after the year of our Lord. Like, those are very clear, obvious delineations. Because before common error was when? Before Jesus. And after common error, when? After Jesus came. So, the common era still revolves around Jesus Christ. Even if academics want to hide behind this idea of common Versus uncommon. This is this is Jesus coming. And he has come. And he calls for people to repent and believe. His message is to repent and believe the gospel. The good news. The good news. Romans chapter 10 verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Jesus is baptized. Driven out into the wilderness. John gets arrested. He comes out and says, if you believe, repent and believe the gospel. This is it. That Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and rose again that you would have life. He takes your sin and buries it. And then he doesn't leave you there. He takes you out of the grave and gives you life, a new life, a full life. A new spirit he puts within you, a new heart he puts within you. Then verse 16, Jesus calls his disciples, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee. (coughs) Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Now pause there and recognize the absurdity of this statement. There, There is connection before this but mark doesn't bring that up they have had some background interactions with jesus before this we know from the other gospels but mark doesn't bring that up mark is emphasizing something here jesus walks up to the water and sees two fishermen who up to this point in the story have not been in the story and he goes hey follow me and i'll make you fishers of men It's a weird thing to say. As often, the call of Jesus Christ on his followers is a weird thing to hear. I want you to give up this job and go to this one. This job over here makes more money. Right, but I want you over here and you'll be happier following me. Okay, I'll go. Christians often follow the Lord where the Lord tells us to in ways that are hard to understand. So Mark is emphasizing, he goes up to these two fishermen, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. He's making them what he designed them to be. But they're not losing their identity. This is one of the beautiful things that we see in the scripture. He takes you from sin and self and wickedness, and he changes your makeup. But he doesn't throw you out. He doesn't throw you out. He tells Peter and Andrew, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. They're still fishers. He still takes them with what they have, who they are, their skills, their abilities, and he takes them and uses them for his kingdom. This is the beauty of the gospel. You aren't thrown away because you follow Jesus and made to be something different. Christianity is the only religion where when you follow Jesus, you become more uniquely who you are supposed to be. You become more different than you were before. It's the only religion where everybody is unique and different. And we're all trying to pursue the same thing. 
We're all trying to pursue Christ-likeness, but we're all so vastly different. And it's the only place where that can thrive. Think about every other religion in the world. Even atheism, let's call it a religion. Even humanism, let's call it a religion. Think about all of those things. When you begin to follow them, you become a homogenous blob of everybody else. You just start to look like everyone else. Every atheist debater sounds the exact same. You listen to some atheist debate people and you will hear the exact same voice, structure, tenor, tone, rhetoric. You will hear the exact same thing. But you listen to Christians debate and talk about Jesus and you've got all over the map. Why is that? Because we're the only religion where you can be uniquely you and still be following Christ. Still becoming more and more like him. So Peter and Andrew, Simon and Andrew here, follow Jesus and they become fishers of men. Verse 18, and immediately they left their nets and followed. And going on a little further, he saw James, and James the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now, Simon and Andrew jump, follow Jesus. James and John jump, follow Jesus. Jesus calls to his people, and they come, my sheep, hear my voice. I call them by name and they come to me. John chapter 10. That's what we have illustrated here. Mark is illustrating the fact that Jesus calls his people and they come. Mark is emphasizing this reality that when Jesus speaks to you and he calls you, if you are his, you hear the voice of the prophet and you come. He is the good shepherd who has come to save his people. He has come to rescue He calls his people. When we follow Jesus, we find who we are to be. And we do not lose ourselves, but rather we gain who we are supposed to be. This is one of the most beautiful truths of the gospel. You want to know who you are. You want to learn who you are. You want to learn about what God has made you to be. Get as close to Jesus as possible. And you will watch as you become more and more individual and unique as you follow Christ. It's amazing. It's amazing. Now we get to verse 21 through 28 and we're going to end. We're going to camp out here and end in this story. Jesus and his disciples here go into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and he was teaching. Jesus walks into the synagogue teaching. Now, if you're not familiar with synagogue, basically imagine two big rows of people, a crowd in the back. There's a table somewhere around right here. There's probably a table, a big table. It's got some scrolls on it. It's got a basket with other scrolls in it. And anybody, any man in the room could walk forward at a certain time, pick up a scroll, read it, give a teaching, and then go sit down, and there would be debate that goes back and forth. People would argue. This is like uh, British Parliament. Have you ever seen that? It's absurd. I'm glad our Congress operates with a little more decorum. But British Parliament, they yell back and forth at each other. There's this table in the middle of the room where they've got all these documents that they yell about. And there's a prime minister sitting up high in the front. And they're yelling back and forth. Now, uh, synagogue had these men that sat on sides and, and you would come up and you'd read a scroll. You'd close the scroll You'd make some comments about the scroll and you'd sit down and then people would argue. They'd go back and forth. They might ask you questions, depending on what you said. They might ask you questions. A good rabbi would read the scroll and then start the discussion by asking questions back and forth. So scribes operated this way. They would read the scroll. They'd reference older rabbis. They'd reference older and older rabbis. They'd reference other scrolls. They would discuss things. They would, everything was tracked. Everything was like a research paper. I don't know if you've ever listened to somebody present a research paper. I have. They're not fun, but they get referenced. And what happens is there's this, when you present a research paper in an evangelical theological society or, 
or a seminary or in some sort of philosophy symposium presentation, you present your research paper. So the first hour is you giving a lecture about your paper. Then you defend your paper with citation after citation after citation after citation after citation. citation, And you go through all your citations. Whole lecture takes about an hour and a half. Then you get question answer time. And in those question answer time, almost everything you say has to be backed up by some form of research. If it's not backed up by some form of research, your paper gets cut. Your paper gets cut down. And the people in the room lose respect for the presenter. This is how it works. Synagogue, not much different when a scribe got up to preach. When a scribe got up to share. And notice, verse 22. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Jesus speaks about the scripture as one who had authority, or a better way to think about it, as the one who wrote it. It's the better way to think about it. He taught them as the one who knew the scriptures, who spoke the scriptures. He taught them as if he was the word of God himself. Indeed, he was. So he stands up and teaches. And unlike the scribes who are referencing all these things, he teaches with authority. Not as one who copies the works of someone else. Not as one who reflects the heavens, but as the heavenly one. You see, we don't teach with this kind of authority. We don't. We teach with the authority that that one has handed to us. We teach with the scripture that he has given to us. But he spoke as the scripture itself, as the word of God, the one who wrote the law, the one who made the heavens and the earth. He speaks with that sort of authority. So Jesus speaks to them and they're astonished at the authority. Jesus, the voice of God, speaking clearly and boldly. We have that authority only in this. Any pastor that ever claims authority apart from the scripture itself is wrong. I just state that out loud. Any pastor, leader, elder, Deacon, I don't know what your background is. Apostle, I don't know. Any any of those that ever speak and claim some sort of spiritual authority over you or above you or beyond you and they don't have the word of God as the authority they are claiming, they are not citing the scripture, they are not holding the scripture out before you to show you where God has spoken, that pastor is in the wrong. The authority of any Christian is founded solely in the word of God moving in and through them. That's where the authority is derived from. That was a side note. So let's look at verse 23. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. I love that, that the unclean spirit shows up where? In the religious place. Remember, Jesus was in the wilderness and fought with Satan, but the demons start coming out when he goes into religious areas. He's going to go into Galilee, and and they're going to be there too, but where do they first show up? When he's in synagogue. We ought not be surprised that the adversary thinks that he can own the church or that he can own the religious institutions. We ought not be surprised. That's where he shows up in the Gospels. He always comes out right there when Jesus goes to be around religious people. That's where he shows up. So we see here the the adversary comes out of the darkness, but also in the midst of their religious worship. Adversary loves to hide in religious worship. It's a tragedy and it's disgraceful. And he comes running out, this man with an unclean spirit, and he cries out, verse 24, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth, or uh, what is there between you and I is how we can really understand it. Like what, what is between you and me? What, what do you have to do with me and with these people? Like he's not just saying the demon. He's also saying these religious people. 
This demon is looking at Jesus, the Son of God, and going, these are mine. Isn't that terrifying? The religious institution that is God's, the demon's going, what do you have to do with us? What do you have to do here? You're not supposed to be here. Of all places, Jesus came to church. That's that's kind of what's being shouted here. He says, you're not supposed to be here. What, is, what do you have to do with us? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Well, the demon exhibits a fundamental misunderstanding of what's going on. You see, the demon thinks that this is his house. The demon seems to think that he has free reign here. So he runs to Jesus and says, what have you to do with us? What have you to do with this place? Religion is mine. I own religion. And Jesus, by his very presence, is saying the opposite. No, this is mine. This is mine. It's the same thing he does to the Pharisees when he drives them out. I made this a house of prayer. My father's house is a house of prayer, and you made it into a den of thieves, and he drives them out. Why? Because it's his. It's his home. It's where he is. The adversary had claimed the synagogue for himself, and Jesus comes in and kicks him out because this is his place. It's the same thing we saw in Ezekiel chapter 34 when he says, my shepherds have abandoned my sheep. I will therefore come and be their shepherd. I will come. And woe to you shepherds of Israel. This is the same thing. Jesus comes and the demon thought it was his place and it's not. Second misunderstanding the demon exhibits is that God doesn't care about people. That's the second misunderstanding. That God only cares about certain types of people. He doesn't care about people. That these are his. What do you have to do with us, Jesus, the Holy One of God? And Jesus' mere presence tells us everything. You are mine. You are mine. I care about people. Jesus cares about people. God God cares about his people. God cares about you. He cares about your brokenness. He cares about the demon possession. He cares about the sickness and the illness. He cares about your struggles. He cares about you. God cares about your difficulty in life. Third, he asks, Have you come to destroy us? Have you come to destroy us? And I want you to hear the implicit response of Jesus. Jesus tells them, be quiet, and then says, get out. In other words, yes, I have come to destroy you. That's what he says. In essence, Jesus says, yes, I've come to win. Jesus proclaims victory over every area of darkness. If you trust in Christ, there is not an area of darkness that has victory over you. He gets victory over all things. The prophet of the Lord, the one true prophet, the voice of God himself, the divine logos speaks into existence life. And you have that life inside you because he has moved and rescued and changed you. You are his. No longer is there room for darkness and sin. Now he is merciful and gentle and he walks with us slowly. But he does desire your sanctification, your holiness and your labor for the kingdom. And it is joy. His presence shows us that this is his place, that these are his people and that, yes, he will destroy the darkness. Jesus' response shows us these things. So what happens? Jesus tells him, be quiet and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, failing to be quiet, by the way, just noting it's almost comical that the quiet doesn't come until after he gets in a last shout, which is often how things happen when we confess sin or when we struggle with things when we when we are overcoming something, there's often a loud shout right before obedience. Right? Often 
often the same. And so he yells with a loud shout, convulses the man, throws him on the ground, and he comes out of him. Verse 27. And they were all amazed so that they were they questioned among themselves or debated, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. There's an indication here that they knew this guy had an unclean spirit. That they knew this guy had an unclean spirit. Maybe they'd even tried to cast this demon out, and it had not gone anywhere. And yet Jesus and the power of Jesus Christ overcomes and destroys the adversary, throwing him out. The world is amazed. Amazed, as in unsettled. Jesus stirs the pot. It's unsettled. It's that he's amazed. The people are marveling over Jesus. When Jesus appears, you should not be surprised that the adversary doesn't like it. You shouldn't be surprised that people are shocked. You shouldn't be surprised. You shouldn't be surprised that stuff gets stirred up. Then they say there's a new teaching here with authority. Yes, the gospel changes everything. If you believe in Jesus Christ, everything changes. Everything changes. The way you interact, the way you see things, the way you talk to people, everything changes. Everything changes. You shouldn't be surprised that the world and the adversary are shocked. Ephesians 6 verse 12 reminds us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and rulers and darkness and dark places. That's where our battle is against. And then finally, verse 28. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. If we are faithful to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ, his name will expand everywhere. Indeed, the message of the New Testament is that God is going to win. That the gospel goes out over the whole earth and he is winning. While we look at this world and it may seem the opposite, we can rest in the truth that the gospel goes forth and will not lose. That Jesus wins. The true voice of God, the divine word, goes out across the earth and we are part of that. He holds his church fast He holds his people fast and there is victory in Jesus Christ across the whole earth for all who believe in Christ will be saved. Lord, we love you and we trust you in all things. Father, we pray that we would be those who rejoice.